It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Elling. Coming up on episode number 13 of Sports Day Plus. At 645, where are we at in society? California is considering a tax for people who can't hold their booze on Sunday fun day. At 6.15, it is the first of a two-segment chat with Grammy-winning musician Bruce Hornsby ahead of his show at the Paramount Theater tonight. And a mere seconds, the Rangers are headed to the World Series. And what should we expect at QB for Longhorn football with Quinn Ewers out for a while? I am your host, Trey Elling. You can give me a follow on Twitter at Courtesy Wave. And do the same for ESPN Austin at 1027 ESPN. Well, congratulations are in order for the Texas Rangers who took care of business in an authoritative manner last night over the Houston Astros, a game that took place in H-Town at Minute Maid Park, which for the Rangers has been a bit of a home away from home over the last week or so. But that's how the Rangers are treating every away ballpark in this postseason. The Texas Rangers remain undefeated on the road in October with an 11-4 victory over the Houston Astros. And as the final score indicates, the Rangers offense finally found their way in this series in a manner that left no doubt as to who the winner was going to be over the, really the second half of the game. They score three in the top of the first and literally chase Christian Javier, who had been an ace of sorts for this Houston Astros team over the last couple of postseasons now. Guy took a no-hitter into the fifth the last time he faced the Rangers in this series. Ends up giving up a two-run homer to Josh Young, but the two earned runs is pretty much the worst he's done in the postseason these last couple of years until last night. And last night, the Rangers made life miserable on him to the degree that he didn't even make it to the second out of the first inning. And you don't fault Dusty Baker for going out and getting him in the first to keep things from snowballing more than they already had where he had given up three first-inning runs on four hits and a walk. No strikeouts. He allowed a homer. Just a shot that was clubbed by Corey Seager. I mean, a no-doubter into the upper deck of right field at Minute Maid Park. And things didn't get much better for just about any reliever that the Astros brought in. Now, Houston did get one back in the bottom of the first off of Max Scherzer, but ultimately Scherzer was improved from the first time we saw him, also at Minute Maid Park earlier in this series. Actually, technically, I think that was game three, so that would have been in Arlington. But this was a better version of Max Scherzer, a guy that Rangers fans and brass thought was going to be shut down for the year when he was dealing with a shoulder issue in early September. But he's a fighter. He's a bulldog. He is the ultimate competitor, as you will hear many people call him. And he continues to go out there and do the best he can. Now, he still gave up a couple of runs in less than three innings. But it was enough, considering the lead that the Rangers had built. Scherzer leaves with a 4-2 lead. 
Jordan Montgomery comes in and does what I think his teammates and fans and coaches all expected him to do. And that has really shut the Astros' bats down over a handful of innings. Technically, he goes 2.1, allows three hits, has a strikeout, doesn't give up a single earned run. And by the time he leaves the game, at the end of the fifth, Texas has built on that lead even more. They were leading 8-2 to two at that time. They tack on two more in the top of the sixth for a 10-2 lead. And the Astros scratch out a couple of more, but it wasn't nearly enough in what turns out to be an 11-4 final score for the Texas Rangers, who now find themselves en route to a third World Series in franchise history. Those first two happened less than 15 years ago. 2010, they lost to the San Francisco Giants, a Giants team that was managed by now Rangers manager Bruce Bochy, as you'll hear time and time again over the coming days. And then also 2011's heartbreak to the St. Louis Cardinals. And this one is sweet for Rangers fans. Not just because you really didn't have these expectations heading into the season or really once the postseason got going, considering how Texas had limped to the finish line and blown a 10-plus game lead in the AL West, becoming a wild card team on that final day and allowing the Astros to win another division crown. But that may have actually served them well because it forced them to get refocused, locked in right away, and they started playing really good baseball in that very first wild card round. Disposing of the Tampa Bay Rays, who had the second-best record in the AL, before taking out the Baltimore Orioles, who had the best record in the AL. And moving on to a Houston Astros team that really dominated them during the 2023 regular season. But as you hear me say from time to time, This happens in sports to a degree, but I feel like this is the case in baseball more than any other sport. That this sport has a way of turning trends on their head in a hurry. Guys who are MVP candidates who just go ice cold from the plate or Cy Young candidates who have a hard time getting it out. Well, this Rangers team, even though one trend did remain, and that is the Houston Astros, not just being really good on the road, but being insanely good at Globe Life Field this year. Texas continues to take care of business on the road itself in the playoffs. Still haven't suffered a loss on the road in these playoffs, which is a big reason why we watched them make it to another World Series now. Huge props to this lineup for waking up like they did, but most specifically, Adolis Garcia, who sets a... Series record, not just championship series or divisional series or world series. No other player has ever had more RBI in a series than Adolis did against these Astros. 15 RBI, which of course includes last night's game that saw him go four for five, two homers, five RBI, three runs scored, and just completely gutting that Houston crowd who is looking to boo him at every turn. And I don't fault him for that, by the way. I get it. He is public enemy number one, just like Jose Altuve is public enemy number one to Rangers fans. 
He gets into the scuffle after being hit by a pitch by Brian Abreu in Game 5, and that really ignited the Astros to a comeback victory. At least that's what they would tell you. And a lot of people at that point felt like the Rangers were toast. And I'll be completely honest, as a Rangers fan, I thought the same thing. But I underestimated the grit, the metal, the resilience of this baseball team that has battled through injuries to the rotation in their bullpen to their lineup losing streaks and it's not even a loud whisper a loud conversation doubting what they are capable of as a team that was already in a sense playing with found money by making it to the American League Championship Series and huge props goes to this lineup and the coaches and the pitching staff for playing like they have over these last couple of games and giving their fans more reasons to cheer over the next week and a half or so. Of course, we don't know who they play just yet. We'll find that out here in sometime between three and four hours, most likely, as the Arizona D-backs, much to everybody's surprise, have forced a game seven in the NLCS with the Philadelphia Phillies. That game gets going here in a little bit less than an hour. Stay tuned if you're around a television on TBS. Didn't have time for the Longhorn football conversation today. We'll certainly get to that tomorrow, though, as my friend Justin Wells of Inside Texas joins me at 6.15, so stay tuned for that. Coming up next, it is a two-part conversation with three-time Grammy winner Bruce Hornsby ahead of his show here at the Paramount Theater tonight. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Ellie. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Ellie. Bruce Hornsby is a three-time Grammy-winning musician who is in Austin tonight at the Paramount Theater in celebration of the 25th anniversary of his album Spirit Trail. He's actually doing a theater tour across the U.S. right now for that, and we're going to discuss these things and more with him as he joins me now on Sports Day Plus. Bruce, thank you so much for the time. How are you doing today? <laughs> I'm doing fine, Trey. Had a tough time connecting, but we, we got it. We finally made it. We had some technical issues, Bruce, but that sadly is still the name of the game in 2023, and it's probably only going to get worse, too, Ooh. which is uh, just a, a reality of life, I guess, for us going forward. Wow, the horror. I'm, I'm hoping for, for, for better in the future, but maybe you're right. Who knows? We'll I like it. Your- deal with it <laughs> I, I like your optimistic attitude Bruce uh, I guess you're not uh, you're not somebody like myself who thinks that uh, ultimately there will be a war between man and machine and the machines will win out because they'll just get us bickering about dress colors and things like that on social media and then we're screwed you know yeah there's no emotion in a machine so that 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 will allow them to win so we're you're right we're in big trouble well, I'm excited for this conversation for several reasons, the biggest of which is that you're going to be here in Austin performing at the Paramount Theater on Tuesday, October 24th for the 25th anniversary of Spirit Trail. There is a really cool an- a 25th anniversary edition of this double album that is out now. It's a 3D set in physical format or a 3LP set 
which contains the original double album, four previously unreleased songs, and over 70 minutes of previously unreleased live performances. The collection is actually housed in a clamshell box and includes a 36-page book featuring new liner notes by you, uh, lyrics, and photography from Danny Clinch, too. Now, even though this wasn't your most commercially successful album, uh, a lot of your fans not only recognize this album, but uh, it is beloved uh, by the hardcore Bruce Hornsby fans. What do you love about Spirit Trail? Well, I love the fact that everything you said is exact, is totally accurate. So you, you, whatever your info source is, it's, uh, it's the correct one. Uh, uh, so how, how do I feel about Spirit Trail? Well, for one, I love the cover. It's, uh, <laughs> it was uh, very controversial. Uh, old people don't like it. Young people like it. Uh, <laughs> it's a picture of my Uncle Charles with a cigarette coming out of his ear and and his eyes, and him lighting the cigarette, and with a wide-eyed uh, look on his face. And uh, when we approached the record company in '98, RCA, with this cover idea, they thought it was—they thought we were kidding. But our, my manager at the time, Q Prime, the Monsters of the Midway, Bernstein and Mensch, informed them <laughs> that no, this is what we like. So. Uh, it's become sort of semi-iconic in our in our world, and, and so look, uh, it just holds up well. It's the first time that I dealt with uh, uh, sort of reinventing or, or sort of broadening my pianistic uh, abilities, uh, and uh, d- dealing with two-handed independence on the piano. So there's a lot of that on the record, uh, and, and and space for that. And that sort of thing guards against commercial success. Uh, the commercial success is mostly about a really good song sung well, and I get that. Uh, and that that's really good songs is also totally what this record was about. And as far as the singing, I'm, it holds up again very well for me. So yeah, there's lots of reasons I could keep going, but it just felt like it was time to shine a light again on this record because, as you said, it wasn't a big commercial success, but it is, it is, uh, it's aged very well. Was there some sort of epiphanous moment or maybe a conversation with a fellow musician that caused you to change how you played piano for this record? Okay. There was always a door, uh, to, uh, a door of piano, a room of piano playing again, called two handed independence. I would open that door and look in and go, it's too difficult. I'm not going to deal with it. But when I turned 40 years old at that time, uh, 90, uh, end of 94, I, uh, I decided, well, I'm 40. Am I going to just rest on my laurels? Like most of my friends, uh, uh, were doing, uh, and sort of ride, ride into the sunset with what I know now, or am I going to challenge myself to recommit myself to the study? of the piano in this manner. Uh, uh, and, and there was, there's one guy who exemplifies this. It's Keith Jarrett. Uh, was one particular piece on his, uh, second solo record, Bremen and Lausanne concerts. Uh, it was called, yeah, it's called solo concerts, Bremen and Lausanne. And it was a mind blowing piece. It's still mind blowing to anyone who deals in that area of music. And, uh, there's no, there's no name. It was just an encore, uh, uh, from one of the concerts 
And, oh, I just couldn't get, I couldn't deal with it. It's, it's sort of a split brain thing, like hmm. the old pat your stomach and rub your head and vice versa. <laughs> so I decided to, to get into this. And so, uh, uh, so I dealt with it and, uh, it transformed my whole musical universe. Uh, and, and so, so right. Keith Jarrett on a pianistic level was the influence on a songwriting level. I, I had used, I'd been u- utilizing the jazz language in my music from uh, on my previous two records, Harbor Lights and Hot House and was interested in moving to another area uh, informed by this, uh, this pianistic uh, development or interest and pursuit. And so uh, the songs are a little simpler, less sort of harmonically florid and, uh, and uh, maybe a little edgier. Edgy is kind of a cliche and can be, and it's a stupid word, but that's the word that comes to mind. Alas. Well, it's interesting because when somebody tends to take a risk with something or try to try something new, it's hard to try other new things at that same time because you're so focused on getting that one new thing correct but as you just mentioned you're not only taking risks with your piano playing style you're touching on subjects that you never really had as a musician before was was that consciously in the back of your mind that you were trying all these new things at once and was there any concern that one might interfere with your ability to properly address the other well, it's a good question, but I feel like I was totally consumed with both and hmm. felt like uh, sort of uh, that they went hand in hand. For instance, I would write a song uh, and uh, uh, I, I wrote a song, for instance, called Resting Place. And it's a song about, uh, to be frank, an overweight person who catches a whole lot of crap for that. And uh and his, and his life dealing with that. And uh, so I had the song. I was influenced by, uh, by the group Cracker. It had this great song called Low, and yeah. I loved it. And uh, so I decided to write my version of Low, and, uh, uh, which the great John Leventhal, most known, well-known for the, uh, having produced those Sean Colvin records in the 90s and early 2000s, I guess, uh, along with his, you know, producing his wife, Roseanne, Cash's records. Uh, so Leventhal was playing all over these the, the, this spiritual record, adding a, a beautiful guitar texture to the whole thing. Uh, so I wrote "Resting Place," the song, and uh, then decided, oh, I can. There's a great way to apply this two-handed independence idea to this song. So I created a, a new area in the song uh, if, uh, to showcase that, and so that so that was it. I was. So I was dealing with both things, but I think they ended up complementing each other. Uh, again, not not for radio, mind you, because look, I got away with soloing on on the radio a couple of times with the way it is in Valley Road uh, several years before this, uh, but I wasn't expecting to. I wasn't making the record for that. I was making the record for these artistic reasons. It must have been nice that you had gotten to a point in your career where you could afford to take that sort of risk too, where you you really didn't have to be concerned with commercial success or keeping songs under a certain amount of time, where you could really just uh, let things loose creatively like that. 
Well, I was letting them loose early on. I mean, the way it is, it's five minutes and five seconds long. Yeah. Valley Road, about the same. So I was never trying to fit into that that uh, narrow stylistic box and range of music that is allowed on hit radio. It just happened. It was a wonderful accident, a great fluke. But so no, it's a, but but people tend to typecast that that I was making one type of record and then making another. Not true. Not true. I was, I was blowing on, on the top 40 songs too. It just happened to work. And don't ask me why it, it's only going to work a couple of times. I, I call those, those early hits, uh, the best kind of novelty record. The only other person I know who had that type of, uh, situation was Mark Knopfler with Sultans of swing. Hmm. It's another song that, uh, it's pretty long with a lot of guitar soloing. So way it is and Valley Road were my versions of that type of thing. Again, neither neither Dire Straits nor I were trying to, you know, quote write a hit unquote. We were just writing a song with 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 obviously oddball subject matter. Uh, uh, Valley Road, for instance, being about uh, a, a, a guy a, a guy who gets a girl pregnant and they send her away to the school for unwed mothers and he's left holding the bag uh so you know again not your standard top 40 uh, uh <laughs> lyrical material he is three-time grammy winning musician bruce hornsby in town tonight at the paramount theater in celebration of the 25th anniversary of spirit animal it is one of his most famous albums amongst the most hardcore Bruce Hornsby fans. And he is nice enough to join me for a couple of seconds to talk about that and a whole lot more. Coming up, we're going to discuss Bruce's time with the Grateful Dead and more coming up right here on Sports Day Plus. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Elling. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Elling. Back with Grammy-winning musician Bruce Hornsby for one more second. Bruce is in town tonight at the Paramount Theater in celebration and support of the 25th anniversary of his album Spirit Animal. Tonight's show at the Paramount Theater not sold out just yet, so if you are looking to make some last-minute plans downtown, go to austintheater.org. Should be a great time. I'm assuming you also had a great time playing with the Grateful Dead from 1988 until Jerry Garcia's death in the mid-1990s. And I'm also assuming that all the reasons you talked about why you've uh, been so good at making music over the years is why things jive so quickly with uh, getting in with the Grateful Dead. Just your unwillingness to to compromise the that creative vision and not be too consumed with song length while making sure that uh, whatever it is that is being put down on paper or whatever is being put out to the masses is the most complete version of that too. Yeah. It's just never why I was in it. I'm an old school musician. I played in my big brother's dead cover band. It was just always about the music for me. I was a total jazzer for a while. I dealt with Again, Keith Jarrett and Bill Evans and Bud Powell and Whitney Kelly and McCoy Tyner and Herbie Hancock and Chick Corea and on and on and on and on. But the Dead Connection was very simple. It had nothing to do with any of this other than the fact that they liked they liked what I was doing. They heard about this band riding around the country, having to learn how to be headliners on one nine on their first nine song record, and so 
fleshing out their concert with a couple of covers when I paint my masterpiece by Bob Dylan done in the Levon and the band version uh, 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 style. And I know you rider. And we were taking a, a song of mine called the red plains into, I know you rider. So instead of China cat rider for them, it was red plains rider for me. And so they heard about this and they got interested in the music and they asked, uh, they uh, asked us to open two shows for them in Monterey, California. And, May of 1987, and it just kept on going from there. The next year, they asked us to open two or three more, and the next year, and the next year after that, from 86, 87 to 90, four years in a row. And then it culminated really sadly with the death of the great Brent Midland and them asking me to join them and replace him. And I told them, look, if you'd have gotten me four years ago before, uh, I'd have joined you but right, uh, right away and would love it. Uh, but since this is happening for me, I've got this thing going pretty well for myself. I don't feel like I can just commit and stop that. So, uh, but I will help you through this tough time if you want me to. So I did for about a hundred shows, but it was a very natural connection. I'd actually started, I would sit in with them. Then after I joined, after I opened for them, and then I would come and sit in with them sometimes, when I wasn't opening, so and then uh, then Garcia played on our third record, the last range record. It just was this growing relationship that culminated in my uh, joining them, winging it with no rehearsal at Madison Square Garden for five nights. Did, <laughs> that was crazy. Gosh, they have so many good songs over the years. Truckin' and Scarlet Begonias are probably two of my favorites. Do you have a favorite Grateful Dead song? I tend to go for what I consider to be the more deeper, sort of sl- slower ballad material. Wharf Rat hmm. is, is my fa- is a favorite. Probably if I had to name one, that's the one that continues to give me chills. But then there's Days Between, and there's Broke Down Palace, and Black Muddy River, and Standing on the Moon, and you could just keep naming them. But I just named all slower songs of the up-tempo songs. I love Jack Straw, which is a, a weird song. I think it's Weird Hunter. But... Uh, so most of the Garcia Hunter songs were slower. There's Ro Jimmy and uh, and uh, <laughs> Tennessee Jed and hmm. uh, Gone and Ramble on Rose. You can just ne- keep naming them. So great. Loser is a, an absolute killer. Hmm. So, so, so many. I'll have to check Loser out. Now that uh, nine song album that you guys were touring with, the one that really... Uh, put you yeah. and the range on the map is the way it is, of course. And uh, one of your most well-known songs uh, is the uh, title track from that album. And for uh, some younger people who may not realize this, uh, that was sampled on the Tupac song that was officially released in 1998 called Changes. I think they recorded it earlier in that decade. Did Tupac or his people come to you about sampling that song before they uh they put it on a track well that came to me after he had been assassinated about a year after that they, uh, i got a cassette out of the blue from the shakur foundation with this song that they'd found and the, a note that said well we've been going through his voluminous files of posthumous uh, 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 posthumously of all the music that he had he'd created before he died and they found so much amazing stuff in this, including this and this. They said this is going to be the single from his greatest pick, uh, hits record that will come out next year. And so, we, one, we wanted you to be aware of it, and two, we wanted to negotiate with you the publishing splits. And and so, 
Yes, that was that. Now that that wasn't the first uh, the first sampling of the way it is. Uh, uh, there have been maybe three or four or five up until that point, but after that, there have been so many more. The great young rapper from Chicago, Polo G, the great version uh, two or three years ago, two years ago, called "Wishing for a Hero." It's just fantastic. And I ended up doing a duet with him remotely during the COVID era uh, uh, for the virtual Bonnaroo Festival in 2021. But anyway, the Tupac thing is is iconic. Uh, it's it truly is. Uh, uh, and so, for instance, I have a son who played AAU basketball. Play, he, he plays in Europe now. He played at LSU, and he, yeah. he early on he, he played in the great Boo Williams AAU program. So he's the only white dude on the team. <laughs> and so what's, what's so great about it is uh, the young kids, his, his young 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16-year-old teammates through the years, they all they all knew Tupac's song. And when they found out that old grandpa here wrote it, <laughs> it gave me a little extra cachet in, in that hood of Hampton, Virginia, Newport News, Virginia. So, so yeah, all good. But, but look, I love what he did. Uh, it's special, and sometimes I will, I will channel those lyrics in my version of, of my of, of way it is. Oh, very cool! Last question, Bruce, because you are uh, coming to town for yeah. uh, in support of the 25th anniversary re-release of Spirit Trail. Uh, as I mentioned at the beginning, it is an incredible re-release. Highly recommend people check it out. You can purchase it through brucehornsby.com. This isn't your first foray into Austin, obviously. Do you have a fondest memory from your time either performing or hanging out here? Probably the first the first time I played Austin and the last time I played Austin. The first time I played was opening in 1986, the fall of 86, for Steve Winwood at the mm-hmm. Irwin Center, Frank Irwin Center, I believe yeah. it was called. And so that was very memorable just because I was playing – opening for one of my heroes, my childhood heroes, Winwood. Uh, Love Traffic uh, <clears throat> and uh, Spencer Davis and his own records. Uh, and then the last time I played was the ACL Festival. was at the ACL Festival uh, on, both, on both weekends about three years ago. And so uh, three or I guess four years ago, uh, uh, j- just uh, uh, pre-COVID yeah. era. And uh, so that was really special, too. And so, yes, uh, Austin obviously is a great music town, and we've had our our moments, uh, uh, totally memorable moments there. Uh, my gig, uh, and, and speaking of the spiritual box, you come to my gig, you get the uh, the box uh, with the price of the ticket, and so that so there's that. Uh, and I'll be playing <clears throat> several songs from Spirit Trail. I'll be playing several old hit songs. Uh, in the way that I like to play them now, not unrecognizable. I haven't rendered them unrecognizable, <laughs> not yet. Anyway. Uh, and then, uh, then other favorites, and I take requests. So the requests play a large part in what I'm going to play because I'm just kind of winging it up there. You take requests not just from your music, but from other music too, or specifically from your music. Well, mostly I, I'm like, uh, I, I, yeah, I, I won't play many many uh, covers. But, but if something strikes me as something interesting, I'm just trying to entertain myself up there. And, and, uh, but it's a deep, it's a, it's an attempt at deep musicianship, whether I bring it off. That's, that's the, that's the adventure of the, of every night. Uh, Cause I'm walking, uh, I'm walking the, the, the t- uh, tight rope without a net. Uh, my left hand is the band. 
there's no band to cushion me when I screw up. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, all of that will be uh, in evidence. Would you would you strongly consider if uh, myself or somebody else were to scream out "Low by Cracker"? Would you give that one a try? <laughs> I would love. <laughs> look, I would say I would say to you, I wish that I could, but I don't know. Don't you want to fall calm down like some misplaced cosmonaut? Yeah. A million miles, a million below your feet. Yeah, I don't really know it. You know, that's that's all I remember. So I would really do a bootleg ass version of low and that's to my detriment because i love it uh so anyway hey don't you want to calm down or whatever it is yeah i'm just mad for the song so yeah probably not unfortunately for me Bruce, I'm a teenager of the 1990s. That was awesome. Even that little bit right there. He is, he, he is multi-Grammy winning musician Bruce Horns, but he is a legend, folks. And he's going to be here Tuesday, October 24th at the Paramount in support of the 25th anniversary of Spirit Trail. There is a re-release. Every ticket purchased gets the 3D, uh, 3 CD set and or uh, the uh, 3 LP set and it has so many additions to that as well go for that or just go to see a legend perform in show at a beautiful place to catch live music bruce thank you so much for the time today man really enjoyed it Uh, hopefully this isn't the last time and safe travels around the country in support of spirit trail be with you girl like being low (laughs) hey hey Hey, like being stoned. Love it, man. Thank you for that. And we'll see whoever comes on Tuesday. Thanks. Thanks a lot, Trey. Coming up in Where Are We At in Society, we have a new low in terms of what teachers will do to subdue their students in a special ed class. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Ellie. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Ellen. Final segment of today's show means it's time for... Where are we at in society today? That's right. It is your usual look at stories that show we as a people are headed in the wrong direction. Very occasionally, I will give you a story that provides a sense of optimism. As us all saying to ourselves, hey, maybe we as a people are starting to figure something out. Perhaps all is not lost But sadly, today is not that day. And we have to start in Humble, Texas today. That's right, in the greater Houston area. I promise, Astros fans, I'm not doing this. As a Rangers fan who begrudges your franchise in your city, even though we have made it to the World Series by defeating your team, I actually just want to extend my hand and say great series. And y'all have had a ton of success in the last seven years, and there may be a whole lot more coming up in the future. And I hope we can do our part to where this becomes somewhat of an annual affair with these two teams meeting up for the playoffs in October. We haven't done our part up to this point. You guys have. You have two World Series to show for it, seven straight ALCS trips, and perhaps there are more on the way. Although it does sound like that may be done without Dusky Baker which 
thrills a lot of Astros fans, despite the fact that he helped you get that title last year. But we go to Humble, Texas for this first Where Are We At story, and I'm just going to have to read you the headline. Texas kindergarten teacher caught giving melatonin gummies to students. That is bad enough on its own until you also learn that her students were in a special ed class. That's right. Kindergarten teacher gives melatonin gummies to special needs kids in kindergarten to get them to calm down. A parent of one of the students who was given the melatonin told Houston ABC affiliate KTRK that the principal called her to tell her what happened. The mother, who doesn't want to be named, said her five-year-old son is nonverbal and that this is her worst nightmare. Something happened at school, but her son is unable to communicate. She said her son's teacher had called her before asking for advice on how to calm him down. Quote, she called me a few times asking, what do you do at home? What do you suggest to calm him down? He's very active, and we sometimes have a hard time getting him to focus back on the task at hand. The mother said the teacher even asked if her son liked gummies and took gummy vitamins, but she didn't think much of the comment until now. The mom said that they noticed on three different occasions when the son came home, he was completely lethargic, stumbling to get off the bus, and the mom called it a breach of trust. Now, are we sure these are melatonin gummies and not, I don't know, weed gummies? Are we sure about that? I get it that melatonin can have that lethargic effect. Did this child have a case of the munchies? More so than most five-year-olds do. Because there might be a case that this is much more serious than melatonin gummies. But the Humble School District did launch an investigation. And they did found that the teacher gave out melatonin. So I'm guessing they found melatonin gummies in the teacher's desk. And that she did act on her own without obtaining parental permission. That's a big no-no. You're going to be unsurprised to learn that the teacher is no longer at her position. Here's where it gets interesting because I know, and look, the pitchforks are warranted sometimes and they're warranted here. I mean, you are dosing special needs kindergartners. So there is a special place in, well, if you believe in the afterlife, a special place in hell for you. But she was allowed to resign on her own and not get fired. Now, the reason for that is because there's a lot of red tape that you have to cut through to fire a teacher, even in a situation like this. So they have kept her unnamed up to this point, which is greatly helpful to this woman because her name gets out there. It's not just going to ruin her professional outlook, which this should probably go on her permanent record anyhow. It's going to ruin her life, her personal life, because she all of a sudden becomes the woman who is dosing special needs kindergartners to get them to calm down. Special needs or not, as the father of a nine and seven year old, I want to talk to this teacher directly right now. If he or she is listening to me, on a random Austin, Texas radio show in the middle of the afternoon, despite the fact that she probably still lives in Humble. It's father of a nine and seven year old. I get it. Sometimes you think about extreme means 
as an end to help you get a little bit of peace and quiet. But you just can't go there. You can't. Look, even if it's not THC gummies, I was kidding about that. Even if it was melatonin gummies, you have essentially dosed special needs kindergartners to get them to chill out, to get them to relax. That's not the gig you signed up for. You got to find some other tools to make that happen. And it's probably an uphill battle too. And I guess fortunately for you, if it was that big of a deal that you felt the need to turn to melatonin to get them to calm down, you're not going to have to worry about that anymore. I don't know if this should keep this person from getting another job in education, but you're probably not going to be teaching young people anymore, especially kids that young and certainly kids of the special needs variety. Yikes. Moving on now from Houston to California. And I have to apologize because my tease for this story, I thought the state of California was considering a tax to help out here, but it looks like California restaurants are going rogue as it pertains to America's most polarizing meal, brunch. That's right. It's not breakfast. It's not lunch. It's happening on Sundays, and nobody really knows why. We're going to call it brunch. My good friend Kevin Dunn likes to say, why don't we have lupper? That time between lunch and supper, where you're just going to decide to force feed yourself and probably drink a little bit too much booze considering the time of day, unless it's a Sunday. Or maybe lupper happens on a Saturday. Lupper seems more fitting of a Saturday. But there are restaurants in California who are sick and tired of people coming to them to eat, yes, but more specifically to drink for Sunday brunch who end up drinking way too much and getting sick in the process, sometimes right at their table in the dining room. How much is this actually happening? I've been to a fair number of brunches in my life. I'm not crazy about that prospect. I try to avoid them at the age of 45 if I can, but I've been to brunches before. I have never seen somebody completely puking at the brunch table. But apparently it's an issue in California enough that certain restaurants are starting to charge a vomit tax. A vomit fee for those who drink too much and puke. Could be mimosas. Could be Bloody Marys, Caesars, Micheladas. But yes, California has had enough people puking at brunch that they're now charging those who do a vomit fee. Kitchen Story is a restaurant that serves Asian-inspired breakfast and brunch in Oakland, California. They have a sign in their bathroom directed towards anyone who plans on chugging rather than sipping their mimosas. Letter says this, Dear all mimosa lovers, please drink responsibly and know your limits. A $50 cleaning fee will automatically be included in your tab when you throw up in our public areas. Thank you so much for understanding. The restaurant posted the sign almost two years ago when its general manager saw similar signs and bars in the area. Quote, this was still during the pandemic 
and it's become a very sensitive issue for customers and staff having to clean it up. From kitchen story owner Stephen Choi, but this is not unique. It's there to make the customers stop and think about other people. I'm going to call BS here. I think this is a matter of Californians being hypersensitive to something that's not actually an issue. Who in the hell is getting so obliterated at Sunday brunch on mimosas and Bloody Marys and whatever else is being drank at brunch that you are puking all over the place? I think that there was a concern that this might happen. And in a way to try and get out in front of it, one or two restaurants maybe posted such signage and other restaurant owners saw this signage and said, you know what? We're not going to get caught behind here. We're not going to get left in the lurch here. We're not going to be the ones stuck dealing with cleaning up somebody else's vomit and not make them pay a price at the same time, other than the price they're paying by puking up alcohol. Because that's a pretty heavy price on their own. So we're going to make sure that they understand that if they puke, they chug those mimosas and puke. God, if you're chugging mimosas, you are really need to reconsider your life choices. But if you're chugging mimosas to the degree that you puke at brunch, you puke up those eggs benedict, those chilaquiles. I don't even know what the hell an Asian brunch is. Asian breakfast is what this place served. Never had breakfast at an Asian food place. I'm sure it's good. But I don't know what the fare is. If you puke up that brunch, though, guess what? 50 bucks. They haven't cashed that in. There's no way somebody has puked at brunch from chugging mimosas. Unless they're letting hobos into the restaurant now. Which it's San Francisco, so I guess that's a possibility. Thank you so much for tuning in today. Do appreciate it. We'll be back tomorrow at 6. Justin Wells of Inside Texas on at 615 to talk Longhorn football. In the meantime, have yourselves a great rest of the evening and hook them. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Ellie.